Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing through our study, so if you want to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, as I shared uh, last week, and we talked about it uh, when, when Luke was uh, covering 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, you know, Timothy is this young, uh, a young believer. He, he uh, has been kind of following. He's a protege of, of Paul. Paul has started the church in Ephesus, uh, raised it up. Uh, and then, you know, Paul was a, a missionary. And so Paul was going, he had spent some time, probably about three years or so in Ephesus, but now he's been going on. And so he left Timothy to, to kind of oversee the church or the churches, because there's probably more than one house church there in Ephesus, uh, to oversee them there and, and just to make sure things are going okay. And uh, young Timothy, was it was a struggle for him. Uh, there was opposition there. Uh, you know, he himself had medical issues, stress-related, I'm guessing. Um, but just it was tough for him. And so uh, Paul here is trying to encourage Timothy in this first letter. And not only that, but he's giving Timothy some instructions on how the church should function. And so we get to chapter 3, and Paul begins here in verse 1. And he says, this is a faithful saying. In other words, it's a trusty saying. It's a saying that can be relied upon. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, right away, when you hear the word bishop, maybe you think of different denominations that have, you know, regional bishops or whatever like that. Um, that's not what this is talking about. Uh, a bishop, the word here, the Greek word is episkope, and it literally means an overseer, an individual who's been given the oversight over a church. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says this. He says, therefore, he's speaking to the elders of the churches in Ephesus. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's that word. Uh, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, in the New Testament... There's the term bishop. You'll come across that in the Bible, in the New Testament. You'll come across the term elders, which is the Greek word presbyteros. In 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 through 2, uh, Peter says this, The elders, or the presbyterios, who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd, and this is another word that's used in the New Testament, it's the word poimeno, or poimen, which is, it, it means to tend as a shepherd. We use the term pastor, so there's another term that you might hear or recognize. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, and there's that word again, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So in the New Testament, you'll come across these three terms. You'll come across elders. Elders were those who presided over the assembly or the local assembly of, of believers, which is known as the church. You had shepherds 
which were pastors, and you have bishops, which were overseers. Now, I'm not talking about three different, really three different roles. Um, the Bible frequently seems to use these titles interchangeably as you go through the New Testament. And really, I think they, they refer basically to different aspects of the same office or the same person. So it's depending on what, what the meaning is that the author is trying to get across. So Paul says this, If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, well, that word desire means to stretch oneself out in order to touch or to grasp something, to reach after, or to desire something. So you have this picture of this of this young man, perhaps, who's just you know he's 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 just serving the Lord. He's got a relationship with the Lord, and now he's just feeling like, man, I want to do something more for the Lord. And the Lord's calling him and laying on his heart to 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 come into the ministry. And so this this man desires this young man desires the position of a bishop. And and so Paul says, if a man desires that position, he desires a good work. You know, the thing is, it's not a position. It's not like, you know, I want to become a bishop. I want to, I want to have that title or that name or I want to have that recognition. Now, granted, there are people that that's their desire. They want to get into that position because they want that, that, that sense of, of self-worth or that sense of respect or whatever it is. But what Paul is saying here, it's not a position. It is a work. And believe me, I can speak from experience. It is a work. It's a, it's a work overseeing the body of Christ, um, but it's a good work. Uh, it's it's you know like fighting the good fight, as Paul would say, in Proverbs eleven thirty, it says, "The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise." And it's good that, that that's a good thing to be about evangelizing your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, whatever, family members. In Luke 15, Jesus said this in verse 10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over God, over one sinner who repents. Man, that's a good work. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents from his sins. The day that you either accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you had a while ago and you backslid and, and then you came back to the Lord, do you know that there was a party in heaven going on? Angels were rejoicing. Jesus was pleased that you gave your heart back to him. It was a good thing. In James chapter 5, verse 19, James writes this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So yeah, ministry is hard. It's a work, but it's a good work. It's, it's a good thing to desire. That's what Paul is saying here. So if someone is reaching after that office of the overseer in the church, if he's desiring that good work, then Paul says, this is what you should be looking for, Timothy, in these men. In 1 Timothy 3.2, he says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. And the list goes on, but we'll stop right there. Blameless is the very first thing that's mentioned here. Does that mean without accusation? That you can't, there's nothing you can accuse this person of. Well, you know the thing is? Um, think about Jesus. Jesus was perfect, right? Jesus committed no sin. And yet, he was accused. 
They were accusations hurled at Jesus. Uh, he was accused of being a glutton. I'd like somebody calling you a glutton. It gets worse. He was called a wine bibber. Now, that's not a word we use. Hey, you wine bibber. But you know what it actually means? It means a wino. They were accusing Jesus of being a wino. Uh, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, we still consider tax collectors bad people, so, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, hopefully there's no IRS. Well, I don't think there's any IRS people here, but you've got a relative that's an IRS agent or something. But, you see, Jesus, he was perfect, and he had accusations hurled at him. But that word, blameless, it literally means not apprehended, that cannot be laid hold of. You see, the point is, you and I, as you and I desire to, to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the world, we're going we're gonna to be going against the flow. And if you stand for your convictions as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to ruffle feathers. It's going to happen, folks. Uh, and you will have accusations hurled at you. But being blameless means that they don't stick. They might hurl them at you, but there's nothing that they can stick to you. It's a false accusation. They just, they're unfounded. Now, if someone uh, hurls an accusation at you and calls you a wine-bibber, and every night, you know, you drink until you pass out, well, you're not blameless, right? It's it stuck. It, it, it applies. Those accusations are true. But the man of God who's seeking that, that office of bishop, he should be blameless. Those accusations, they should just not stick. You should also be the husband of one wife. Now, there's been a lot of different interpretations or applications of this phrase, but, you know, you have to go and kind of go back to the culture. And in the Roman culture, polygamy was widespread. And uh, one of the sayings in the Roman, among the Romans was that it was good for a man to have one legal wife to bear his legitimate children, to have another concubine for pleasure, and to have a mistress for adventure. So that, that was the culture. You know, these Gentiles these that were getting saved and stuff, that was the culture that they lived in. And so Paul says, hey, if there's a man seeking that office, he needs to be, and this is what it literally means, a one-wife man or a one-woman man. So the pastor, if he is married, is to be singularly devoted to his wife. He's not to be a womanizer. He's not to, to be a flirt. Does it mean that if he's widowed, he must remain unmarried? He can't, you know, he's married once. That's it. You've, you've used up your, your one wife thing and then you can't have any more wives. Um, I don't think it means that. What about a divorced situation? Now, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith Don. So you can maybe don't need to write that down as notes. But I think in a divorce situation, I think you have to look at each one independently in, in a individual circumstances. I can't, th- I can't say you can just, I don't believe you can just blanket say they can't be in the role of a pastor. Because what if a person was divorced before becoming a Christian? You know that Jesus says, Paul writes, Jesus says, that when you and I come to faith in Christ, we're a new creation. All things are new. So I don't think that applies in that situation. But, you know, it's sad to say that divorce is the statistics. And, you know, you think it shouldn't be that way. But the statistics of divorce among Christians, that rate, it's it's about the same as the world, as with non-believers. That's a sad sad testimony. What if a, 
a Christian, especially a pastor who's already a pastor, gets divorced and wants to remarry. Again, I, I'd have to say that it's dependent on the individual circumstances. But let me say this. Jesus' church, because that's your you're his church, right? I'm just an under-shepherd. Jesus bought and purchased you with his blood. You're precious. You are very precious. And I think in some circumstances, a pastor in that kind of a situation, they should step down for the sake of the body of Christ. They really should. Again, it's an individual basis, but the point being, you know, it's not to be treated lightly because God, Jesus, bought and paid for his church. And so if it's going to if it's going if it's a, if it's a questionable situation I think in some cases the pastor should step down but not in all cases again I think you'd have to look at it individually The next quality is to be temperate and that word means vigilant or sober and it literally means sober especially in respect to wine or alcohol but it metaphorically means sober-minded watchful and circumspect and if you think about a drunk you know, the drunk is not aware of what's happening around him or her. Listen to Proverbs twenty three thirty five. This is a drunk person speaking in Proverbs thirty uh, twenty three. It says, They have struck me, but I wasn't hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? I mean, it's like, all this stuff's happening. I don't even know what's happening, you know. Things are not happening around me. Well, you see, the overseer of God's flock needs to be sober and watchful, because that's what he is. He's an overseer. And so he needs to uh, be sober and watchful in order to protect the flock that has been entrusted, he has been entrusted with. So he needs to be temperate. He needs to be sober-minded, and that means a sound mind. Now you look at me and you go, I don't know if that guy's got a sound mind, man, I tell you. But really what it means is curbing one's desires and impulses, being self-controlled being temperate, uh, not being ruled by the passions of his flesh, of good behavior. And sober-minded refers to the inner man. Good behavior, on the other hand, refers to the external of a, search, of a, search, of a person. Uh, John Gill says this. This is the description that John Gill gives. Neat and decent in his apparel. Well, that was convicting to me because I don't know if I'm always neat and decent. But modest in his whole deportment and conduct and affable and courteous to all. And I love this. Beautiful in his life and conversation. Being adorned with everything that is graceful and comely. It's just, you know, outwardly, just good behavior is a quality that's expected of pastors, of overseers. Another one, hospitable. And that literally means a lover of strangers. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul writes to the church there that all Christians, all of you, all of us, should be hospitable. We should be given to hospitable hospitality. We should love strangers. You know, how else are people that don't have a relationship with the Lord, how else are they going to come to faith in Christ unless we love them enough to care about them, to reach out to them, to meet their needs, or whatever it is, you know, to, 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 uh, to, to be outreaching people. Well, if all Christians should be hospitable, how much more should the pastor who sets the tone and the example for the flock of God? It's, it's that much more important. You know, I, I know that there's some pastors, or some, even the Calvary chapels, or some very large Calvary chapels, 
I know a pastor is a pastor of a 10,000 member church, a little bit bigger than ours. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they say is, you know, I can't be everybody's friend. I, I can't have everybody over for supper. I can't go out to lunch after church with, with every member. I mean, it's like you sign up on a list and, you know, six years from now I'll be able to get to you, you know. Um, he can't do that. And I totally understand that. But you know what I think when I hear that? I think, well, you know, maybe your church is too large. Maybe, maybe you're kind of missing the purpose of the church. If you're that big that you can't be. And, and on the other hand, I also know some pastors of some very large churches who they tend to isolate themselves from their congregation. And they might use that excuse. Well, I can't. But, you know, the problem is they set themselves up for secret sin because they're not accountable to anybody. They're off on their own. You know, they're just untouchable. They're, you know, they're just there to preach, and then they're gone. And they're, they're, there's no interaction with the people that they're supposed to oversee, the people that they're supposed to pastor, to shepherd. Now, I'm not saying that all, bad, all big churches are bad and that they should, you know, that's their, you know, we're, we're, we're the right guys and they're the wrong guys. I'm not saying that at all. But I wonder about that when I hear that. Well, I'm too big to reach out to people, you know, or too big to, to, to be hospitable to people. Well, they should be given to hospitality anyways, whether they have a large church or a small church. They need to be able to teach. And that word literally in the King James says apt to teach. You know what's amazing about that? There are seminaries that have been established to teach men how to preach the Word of God. That's their focus. You're going to go to school to learn to become a preacher. Uh, The amazing thing is that this is not the top of the list. You know, uh, a pastor, and sometimes people judge pastors whether they're good or bad based on their teaching ability. Well, he's a good pastor because he teaches good. Or he's a bad pastor because he doesn't teach good. Um, But it's interesting that it's, the Bible doesn't say he must be a good teacher. You notice how he doesn't say he must be a good pastor, a good teacher. He just says he must be apt to teach. And when you look at this list of, character, of qualities that we're looking at this morning, do you notice that God is more concerned with the character of the man than whether they can preach a good sermon? God is more concerned with their heart and their character. If the man's character is good, if his heart is in the right place, you know what? God can take him and anoint his preaching, and anoint his teaching. God can use a person like that. Now, granted, there does have to be some aptitude to take God's word and rightly divide it and explain and provide an application. There's got to be some application. You know, there's got to be some aptitude for that. But that's not the focus. The focus is the character of the man himself. Nehemiah eight eight says, "So they read distinctly from the book." in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And that's really what we're trying to do here. We're reading from God's Word. We're trying to give the sense, and we're trying to help them. I'm trying to help you understand the reading, and then, and then I'm going a step further. How do I apply it to my life? So, so there needs to be an aptitude, but that's not the focus. Again, God can use the heart that has good character and the heart's in the right place. Uh, verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. So not given to, to wine, basically not a drunk, right? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to say that I think personally, again, thus saith Don, uh, drinking is off, or social drinking, I should say, is off limits for the pastor. 
and you know, and I know that there are some pastors that that still drink alcohol or whatever. Um, I want to share my experience. You know, I wasn't always a pastor, <laughs> um, and when the Lord laid the call on my heart to pastor to become a pastor. Um, during that time, I was still kind of a social drinker. I was never really a heavy drinker, but, you know, I'd have a beer now and then or a, a margarita, whatever, different things like that, you know, maybe a glass of wine, something like that. Um, but as I became more and more involved in ministry and as I started pursuing ministry more and more, my desire to do that started kind of just kind of leaving, basically, and I started having this conviction that, you know what, I don't think the Lord God wants me to drink anymore. And I remember one time I came to Teresa, and I said, Teresa, I said, you know, um, I just, I got to share this with you. I, I just I just feel like I, I'm not supposed to drink alcohol anymore. And her face lit up, and she got this big smile. And I'm like, what? She goes, I've been praying that the Lord would lay that on your heart. And, and and so it was. It was something that the Lord... Now, I'm not saying that because that's the what I experienced, that that's the experience for every pastor. But let me read something to you out of Proverbs. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It says, and this is, this is a mother speaking to a king. Now, the king is Lemuel. We don't know who it is, right? Seth and I were studying that the other day. Uh, we don't know who it is. It could be Solomon. And if that's the case, it would be Bathsheba, because that was Solomon's mother teaching Solomon's, giving Solomon some wisdom as a young king or some other king. And this mother's giving this other king some instructions. But in verse 4 of Proverbs 35, it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Yeah, it's not like drinking alcohol is of the devil and, you know, that's sin and all that. But it's not for you because you're in a position where you shouldn't be intoxicated because you're making judgments, you're making decisions. And I think that same application falls on the pastor as well. You're in a position, you know, I, I don't, I have a hard enough time. I'll be, I'll be frank with you. I have a hard enough time staying filled with and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's something I have to keep working at. Lord, pray. I have to keep praying. Lord, I feel like I'm I'm going in the flesh again. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I have to. It's it's a work for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit constantly. I don't need to cloud my thinking or to dull my physical or spiritual senses and my judgment under the influence of distilled spirits. I just need to be filled with that Holy Spirit. So there's it's just it's just going to make it that much harder for me if I'm if I'm you know getting inebriated every once in a while. Uh, think about it in in a practical sense, in a, in, you know, a drunken or even an inebriated shepherd, you know, a guy that walks around with sheep, you know, they'd have a hard time protecting and leading their flock of sheep. And if that's the case, how much more serious is the office of an overseer that's in charge of people's, or not in charge, but overseeing the souls of people? So it's it's serious business. So for me, you know, it's just something the Lord laid on my heart. And I, I and so I'll say I don't think a pastor should even be a social drinker because of these reasons. Not only that, and not to mention, you know, there's new believers or struggling believers who are maybe, you know, they, they're off the wagon or on the wagon when they're off on. They're on the wagon, right, when they're not drinking. Okay, they're on the wagon. They didn't fall off yet. They're on the wagon. You know, and, and here they see their pastor swigging a, you know, having a beer in his hand and stuff. What's that going to say? Well, if, it's, if the pastor can do it, it must be okay for me. And maybe it's totally not okay for them because they've got an issue with it. 
So, so those are the reasons why, you know, I, that's how I feel about it. Um, but here's the issue. And I've come across, not too many pastors that, that argue about drinking, but, you know, I've, I know that there are pastors that still feel, hey, it's okay for me to drink. I have that liberty in Christ to do it. Or going back to that whole remarriage issue, hey, you know, it's my right and it's my liberty to do that. It's really not your business, you know, and stuff. Uh, you have to wonder if they truly have the heart of a shepherd. Because it goes back to that. Do they care more about their rights and their liberties than the flock of God who Jesus Christ purchased with his blood? And to me, to me, the answer is a no-brainer. And man, you know, when you're, when you're entering into serving ministry, you know, Jesus, he laid down his life. I mean, he laid down, he was God, is God, but he laid down that aspect of him and took on the form of a man. How humbling would that be? God, who's creator of the universe, you know, to become a man, to live like you and I, to be hungry like you and I, to deal with accusations of numbskulls. You know, I mean, things like that. All that stuff that he had to deal with. He just, he just set it aside because he loved you and I so much. And, and so if we are to be like Christ... I mean, how much more should we be willing to lay aside my rights and my liberties for the sake of a greater good, which is the flock of Jesus Christ? So, moving on there. He's to be not violent. And the King James Version says, no striker. So, you know, when I read that right away, it tells me there's no sense having a local brotherhood of pastoral workers, you know, Local 109 or something. I, I can't be part of a pastor's union. Why? Because we can never strike. Can't be a striker's. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, had, I had to look at that because I wrote it down. I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> you can never strike. What does that mean? It means not a pacifist. Uh, it means not a pacifist, but a man who has no control over his temper. That's somebody who's, who's uh, you know, they're not to be violent. Uh, Thayer's Greek dictionary says a bruiser, ready for blow, ready for a blow, a pugnacious or contentious or quarrelsome person. Man, the pastor's not to be that way. Not greedy for money. And I love King James Version because it's just, I just like the way it says it. They're not to be greedy for filthy lucre. Filthy lucre, you know. <laughs> now, the Bible says that the worker is worthy of his wages, Right? But this is more speaking about those that are trying to be in it to enrich themselves from the gospel, to try to make a profit from the gospel, to try to become wealthy through it. And so they're not to be greedy for money. They're to be gentle, and that word means forbearing or patient, reasonable. I like Vincent's word study. It says, not unduly rigorous, not making a determined stand for one's just due. Just, you know, letting things, you know, just being reasonable, just being patient, forbearing. With situations, not always having to stand up for my rights, my liberties. Not quarrelsome means not contentious, not a fighter or combative. And you know, and, and uh, I've known some pastors that are that. They're just they're combative, they're contentious. I'm like, well, you, that's not that shouldn't be a quality of a pastor. Not covetous. Now, you know, I think there's a lot of pastors that would pass that test, except. Man, we covered each other's ministries. You know that? You know, we go, man, they got a big How did they get a big church? And I got a little church. Why did they get such a brand new building? And I got this little old building. Or, you know, and so pastors, believe it or not, can be covetous of other pastors or other ministries. 
Um, I like this. It says, The covetous pastor is the one who is never satisfied with anything, always demanding something more or different from God. You know, just to be frank with you guys, you know, there are times when I look at other ministries and I look at other churches and go, Lord, you know, wow, it's awesome what you're doing there. You know, the spiritual thing would be say, Lord, bless that person. I'm so thankful that you're blessing them. But, you know, I'm in the flesh. I'm a human. And, and, and so sometimes it's like, Lord, wow, why didn't you do that here? Why can't, you know? And so for me, uh, you know, it's, it just comes down to, you know, this is, this is where the Lord's called me. Minister and bless those who God has brought to you because they're precious. Each one of you is precious in God's sight, purchased by his blood of value to him. You look at Jesus. Jesus didn't have a mega church. Jesus had 12 disciples and, and, and he loved them and, and he raised them up and he cared for them and, and, and did all that. And so, you know, it's just, a, you know, God's given me this ministry and I'm, I'm thankful for it. And uh, God blesses other pastors with more headaches and, uh, you know, <laughs> I've got just the right amount of headaches. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, God knows what we God knows what we can handle, and and uh, and there are times for everything. So I'm just, but you know, a covetous pastor is one who's always looking beyond. I, I I've known a pastor, a friend. He's not pastoring now. He's kind of wanting to get back into it again, but um, he had this expectation. He started pastoring a, a small Calvary, and he's like, you know, in year five, my congregation should be this size, and then in year 10 it should be this other size and, and he's like it, it's just it should be that way and if it's not and it didn't happen that way he's out of there and i'm thinking well, you know that's that's just not the right way uh to demand you know or always be looking never being satisfied with what god has given you so the pastor's not to be covetous verse four one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, it's interesting. I've been amazed. You know, I go to the Senior Pastors Conference for Calvary Chapel. I've, I haven't gone uh, last year. I'm not going to make it this year. But in years past, there'd be times where they'd have a, a prayer meeting or a kind of a what's called an afterglow um, on, on one of the evenings of the conference. And during that time, for quite frequently, they ask for pastors to come forward if they need prayer for anything. And one of the things that they've asked pastors is, if you have any black sheep, you know, prodigal sons or daughters, come forward and let's pray for you. And it's blown me away to see like half of the auditorium go to the front to seek prayer. There's so many pastors that have black sheep or have prodigal children. And, you know, you think about that. Man, if, if that's what this means, then all those pastors are automatically disqualified. <laughs> you know, now, granted, if you're a pastor and you're allowing your daughter's boyfriend to shack up in her bedroom, yeah, that's, that's not right. Uh, if your marriage is a total mess and you're not exercising any authority in your own home, you have no business shepherding the flock of God. Because this is a serious business. Jesus paid for his flock with his own blood. And so, so the pastor, you know, uh, one who's ruling his house well, you know, there are prodigal children. I mean, let's face it. Um, there are children that, that they, you know, you raise them the right way. You know, a pastor can have five children, four children, three children, raise them all the same way. One of them decides to 
to rebel and stuff. You know, you, you can't control that. But if a pastor um, does not exercise authority, if the pastor makes poor choices and, and just allows his children just to do whatever, uh, th- this marriage is a mess, um, then they really, they really shouldn't be pastoring a church. Verse 6, not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. That word novice means newly planted. So what it means is not a new believer. Um, Lest being pumped up with pride. Uh, You know, I guess it's possible for a new believer to get caught up on a title. Um, Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, The young convert has not yet been disciplined and matured by afflictions and temptations. Hasn't been disciplined by afflictions and temptations. You know, part of maturing as a believer is growing through afflictions. You know, I, 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 I've known pastors, and we had one pastor, and I'm not going to mention his name because some of you might even know him, but we, we, I had one pastor, and he was a great guy. He was one of the bigger guys in Calvary Chapel. And uh, um, when I say bigger guys, I mean, he was one of the founding. Not, yeah, it was kind of it was around in the beginning, I guess. He's an older guy. <laughs> Anyways, you know, and we, we attended his church for a while, and, and great guy, great Bible teacher. But, you know, I remember... Some Sundays going, just seemed like it wasn't as deep um, as you know I would have hoped for in some of his teachings. But later on, he ended up losing an eye, losing a lung, losing a hip. I mean, he's gone through a lot of stuff, and I've seen because I've known him over the years. I've seen this transformation where man, he's deep now. There's just there's a quality to him that seemed to not be there before. And I think that was afflictions. And, and so, you know, we always look at afflictions. Man, I don't want affliction. I don't want, I don't want to go through tough medical issues. I don't want to go through hardships and stuff. But yet, those are the things that cause you and I to grow in our faith. And the same is true about temptations. Part of maturing through is through saying no to sin and temptation. You'll grow as you learn to say no. You really will. And so um, so putting a, a person in, just you know, they, they just get saved and saying, how would you like to pastor this church? You know, they, they haven't been through those things yet. Um, and so uh, the devil can easily take someone like that and uh, play, you know, just mess them up mess up their ministry. So it shouldn't be someone who's a brand new believer in the Lord. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So his testimony outside of the church should match his testimony inside the church. What you see here in the pulpit is, should be the same thing you see during the week, out, on the, out at his house or anywhere. There should be no discrepancies in his life. And it talks about lest he fall into a reproach, reproach and snare of the devils. You know, there are many pastors who are formerly were, and you could fill in the blank. I formerly was a drug addict. I formerly was this. Or I formerly was that uh, before they were saved. They need to be especially careful that they don't fall into the reproach and snare of the devil because the devil knows our weaknesses. He knows our tripping points. He knows where he can get a foothold in our lives. And so he's going to tempt us 
according to our former weaknesses. And so as a pastor, you know, if you, I was a former this or a former that, uh, it's so much more important to be watchful and in prayer as a pastor because it's easy to stumble. Because once you decide that you're going to start serving the Lord God, you know what happens? You get this target on your back, a bullseye, and it's a spiritual bullseye. And the enemy wants to take you out because if he can take you out, he can hopefully take out all the people that are your sphere of influence or those people that you're ministering. So pastors and ministry leaders, man, they have targets on their backs. Verse 8, likewise, now we get to another whole category. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Deacons, the word is diakonos, and it literally means table waiter, errand runner, or servant. And, you know, those who are the deacons, they're those whose work and ministry and what they do is meant to relieve the pastor of some of those duties he would otherwise have to undertake. It's not beneath the pastor to do those things, but it allows the pastor to devote himself to prayer and the Word of God. The first example of that is the deacons in Acts chapter 6. Let me read this to you. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so here they're saying, pick out some men of good reputation. And so Paul here says that one of the first qualities of a deacon is that they must be reverent. And that word means venerated. They must have a reputation for being honorable, for having a good character. And so back when the church was starting out, these Hellenist widows felt like they were getting neglected because the church was growing. And at that point, the disciples said, hey, we need some helpers. And so they told the church, pick people of good reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll give them that task so that we can continue focusing on the Word of God in prayer. And so they picked these different people. It says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. How did they know that? Well, they, they saw it in his life. They saw it in everything that he did. And the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And what was the result? The word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So it's not like a pastor can't mow the lawn, or a pastor can't clean a toilet, or a pastor can't you know, do whatever the, whatever the tasks are. It's not below the pastor, but the pastor is to be focused on the Word of God in prayer. And, and so a deacon comes alongside and just ministers and says, you know what, I want to help out. And we have lots of people that do that here in this fellowship. And I thank you. If I don't personally thank you once in a while, I just want you to know I do thank you. I do appreciate uh, the things that you do. So they're to have uh, a good reputation. They're not to be double-tongued. It means they're not to speak out of both sides of their mouth. They're not to be deceptive with their speech. They're not to be given too much wine. Go, hey, 
So the bishop's not to be given to wine, a deacon not given to much wine. <laughs> so, hey, you know, if you, you'd like, hey, I still like my, you know, well, then be a deacon. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. I really think the same principle applies to, de- to deacons as to bishops uh, who are overseers. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't be filled with distilled spirits. Um, if you realize the seriousness of the calling to ministry, the responsibility, even as a deacon that you have uh, to represent Christ to those you minister to, um, you know, you, you need to understand that what you do is going to impact people around you. And, and so, you know, he says they're, they're not to be uh, given too much wine. I think the only difference between the qualification of a bishop and a deacon is the level of responsibility, the level of, of judgment that a, that a pastor will undergo as opposed to a deacon. Um, and then not to be greedy for money. Again, it's the same qualifications for the pastors. And really, you know, you, you could say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a deacon, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, you're a Christian. And so really, this, this should apply to all of us, these, these qualities. Um, can you imagine Paul saying, pastors must not be greedy, but it's okay if the deacons are. <laughs> you know, they're not to be too much greedy. You know, no, it's just, we're not to be greedy. Verse 9, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. What's the mystery of the faith? It's the gospel. The gospel which was concealed or hidden under the old covenant. It was there if you dug in a little bit and you can, you can find it. I love going through the Old Testament and finding pictures of Jesus in there and, and just examples of, of the gospel in there, and they're, they're in there. But that's the mystery of the faith, the gospel, which was concealed under the old covenant, but it has been revealed in the new covenant. And so these deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. You know, it's possible to hold to the belief in the gospel, but still have a corrupt heart. Oh, I believe all that stuff, but your life doesn't match up with it. And so the only way for you and I to have a pure conscience basically is to say no to sin and also to confess when we do sin and to turn away from it. Verse 10, But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So you want to make sure that those who serve as deacons, and certainly those apply to pastors as well, that they don't have a hidden life or something that would bring reproach on the name of Christ. Let them, let them just serve for a while. Don't, don't throw them in there right away. Verse 11, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So is that talking about the deacons' wives or what? Well, interesting. My Bible, anyways, there, the word there is italicized, as well as must be, but the point I want to bring out is there. And the reason why is because the translators say, well, that must mean their wives. But literally, the original transcript, it says, likewise, wives reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. You know, if you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria. That word servant, again, diakonos. She was a deaconess in the church of Corinthia. So I think this qualifications here is describing the women deacons, the deaconesses in the churches. So they should be reverent. Again, uh, they must be venerated, right? They must have a reputation for being honorable, for being good character. Not slanderers. 
temperate. Again, same as verse 2, sober-minded, watchful, circumspect, faithful in all things. And then verse 12, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we've gone through these lists here. We're going we're gonna to stop here for this morning and uh, pick this up again next week. But one thing I want to encourage you, um, you know, if you desire to be in ministry, whether it's becoming a pastor or becoming a deacon or getting involved in serving people, um, I want to encourage you, it's work, but it's a good work. It's a good thing. And, uh, you know, to be involved in, in seeing people's lives transformed, there are eternal rewards associated with that. And you might say, well, you know what? Um, yeah, I could see maybe a pastor having an altar call and people repenting of the Lord, you know, repenting of their sins and, you know, that they've done that thing. But what about me if I'm just, you know, out here, I'll use an example. We don't have it, but sweeping the parking lot. We don't have anybody that sweeps the parking lot. But, you know, I I just go out there and I sweep the parking lot or, you know, I I refill the, the coffee stuff or whatever. How does that minister to people. Where are you you're saying that that's a spiritual thing? I want to share this with you and close with this. Hebrews 6:10 says for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is going to reward you for those things, even the smallest things that you do. The Bible even talks about giving, giving someone a cup of water, cold water, to relieve them. That, 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 there's a reward in that. And so I want to encourage you, being involved in ministry, there is a great reward. And, you know, sometimes people can do things and they can go on being unthanked. You know, people kind of take it, you know, not take advantage, but kind of don't even realize that, that whatever that task is, it's being done every week. And yet you're faithfully doing it. And nobody's ever said, you know, I, I just want to recognize you for doing, you know, folding the napkins, whatever you, whatever it is, you know. But God sees those things. And God will reward you. And, and, you know, the thing is, you don't know how what you do impacts the overall picture of the fellowship. And people come in here and they're just things, they're, things are done, things are in order, and, and it ministers to people. Every little aspect. There's, there's nothing insignificant in serving and ministry. So I want to encourage you that, that God recognizes what you do, and he's going to reward you for that. So if you pursue ministry, man, it's a good work. But you've got to fit in these qualifications. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for these guidelines and qualifications that we can look at. And, Father, I know that uh, these are uh, written specifically for pastors and deacons and those that are in in, uh, the ministry and in the church. But, Lord God, I know that these really, most if not all of these, apply to us as Christians as well. Or just as every day-to-day believer, Lord, that we need these qualities in our own lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would be pursuing those qualities, Lord, that we would be pursuing uh, having good character, having a right heart before you. And that, Lord, I pray that as we pursue that, Lord, that as we do that, Father, you might call individuals in this fellowship into ministry. Lord, I pray that you would raise up deacons. 
I pray that you would raise up pastors from this body of Christ. Lord, that we would see people going out, missionaries, Lord, just people that are impacting their world, Lord. Uh, I pray that you'd even raise up missionaries to our own neighborhoods, to our own workplaces, to our own families, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would raise each one of us up and use us mightily in this last generation. So we thank you and we bless you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.